This episode of 12 Pack was made possible by Nextiva. The official communications partner of the Pack 12 and best business phone service is chosen by U.S. News and World Report. Nextiva helps companies all over Pack 12 countries stay connected with customers and coworkers using one easy-to-use app. Get Nextiva for your business and get business phone service, video conferencing, team chat, call reporting, and more, all for a fraction of what you pay for those services separately. Make great calls every day. Visit nextdiva.com slash 12pack to get started. For 12-Pack Radio, get excited, y'all. Hey, football fans, and welcome to The Scheme Show here on 12-Pack Radio. My name's Doug, and I'll be one of your hosts for today. And here with me is my co-host, Andrew, who you can find on Twitter at QB11SD. How's it going, Andrew? I'm doing great. Just excited to interview Jesse and talk some air raid and run and shoot offense, kind of compare and contrast since obviously there's a lot of... uh, a lot of conversation on Twitter about how they're the same thing when they're they're very very different. So I'm excited to get that kind of sorted out, and hopefully some people will learn a couple of things today. Absolutely, we've got a great show today. And as Andrew mentioned, today we're going to be joined by run and shoot slash air raid specialist Jesse Casino, who's going to talk us through the high flying passing attacks at Washington State and USC. Jesse's the film reviewer for Washington State blog CoogCenter.com. For the last several years, he's been writing a lot of awesome breakdowns of Mike Leach's air raid offense, and this year he's been covering the transition from the air raid to the run and shoot. If you want to follow up on any of the concepts that we talk about here in this show, definitely look him up on Twitter at Jesse underscore Casino, and check out his Coach's Corner segments at CoogCenter.com. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Uh, great to be here. Uh, happy to, to break down some uh, air raid and some run and shoot to my favorite offenses in football. Fantastic. Um, so let's get right into it. Washington State's run and shoot offense. There were a lot of questions over the offseason about how easy it was going to be to adapt to this new offense, especially doing everything during the pandemic over Zoom. So let's just get some first impressions here. Um, we'll get into the scheme as we go. But before we do, how are we all feeling about the start of the Nick Rolovich era at Washington State? Are we exceeding expectations? Are we right about where we were? Uh, what, how are we feeling getting after these first two games? Um, I'd have to say that uh, any any Coug fan would be pleasantly surprised um, with the transition thus far. Um, you know, all the real world stuff uh, that goes along with it, but also just any time you get in the coaching carousel, um, it's always a complete crapshoot. So it's it's been a smooth transition, about as smooth as you can expect. Uh, and then the results on the field have matched it. So pleasantly surprised and, and kind of cautiously optimistic of uh, kind of continuing the, the run of success that we've had over the last few years. Yeah, two pretty exciting games to start off. Um, I think a lot of people expected this offense to take a little bit longer to get going. I'll be looking forward to hearing um, uh, how it is that he's been able to bring this new system into Pullman. Now, for those of our listeners who maybe haven't heard that much about the run and shoot or the air raid or all of this before, in 30 seconds or less, let's start off with the run and shoot. How would you define it? Uh, So the run and shoot is very much a spread the field um, and attack uh, as much of the field as possible. Um, but where it really makes its mark is that it's a read and react offense. Um, it's all, all, all the heavy lifting is kind of done post snap. So, uh, whatever the defense does on the fly is wrong. And then the receivers and the quarterback just have to be on the same page and see the same thing at the same time. 
How have we seen those run and shoot principles show up in Washington State's games so far? I mean, have there been any kind of key plays that you can think of? Anything that stands out as a classic example of what the run and shoot can bring to the offense? So the run and shoot has a couple of kind of hallmark um, pass combination, route combinations um, that it has run since... I mean, you can go as far back as Mouse Davis in the 80s with some of these concepts. And we've seen them uh, on the field in the last couple of weeks. Um, the, the go concept, uh, the levels concept, the street concept, um, they've all been there. And then Rolovich has brought some of his own spice into it by mixing in some RPO uh, and some zone read as well. Because we've got, you know, Jaden Delora, who's an athletic quarterback in his own right. Um, so, you know, it's it's a combination of, of old school run and shoot um, and the classic concepts that we've seen there uh, and then kind of bringing that into the 21st century with some of the additional uh, pieces that Rolovich has, has brought to the table. Um, and it's all it's all been run through the quarterback. And, and he's for a true freshman. He's been fantastic. Yeah, Jesse yeah. makes a really good point here too. Uh, kind of a, a differentiating factor is there's basically three buckets of offense. You have the West Coast pro style offense, you've got the spread numbers based offense, and then you've got the air raid, which is kind of its own thing. But the run and shoot differential uh, kind of falls into that more true spread offense category. And what you've seen is Rolovich is. Uh, taken what Mouse Davis and a lot of these other run and shoot old school guys, June Jones have done, but he's also started to incorporate some of the more modern spread principles with the run and shoot, which only makes it more complex and, and tougher to defend. So what are some of these new spread elements that are being brought into the run and shoot offense? I and mean, we've mentioned the RPO and things like that. Is that the main way in which Rolovich has modernized this offense? Um, how has he kind of made it his own for the year 2020? Yeah, and uh, going back and looking at looking at what he did at Hawaii over the last couple of years, you really started to see the RPO uh, start to be a thing there. Um, we also started to see a little bit kind of of the Baylor mentality with um, his his route concepts uh, with the RPO. In that um, on the on the play side, on the pass side, they run their routes, and then on the back side, they kind of just kind of half tail uh, jog out there and maybe get in the way in case it's a run. Um, so we started to see that kind of split field mentality. And then there's a really stark divide between the run side and, and the pass side, even down to the offensive line. Um, so, yeah, that that new kind of uh, RPO mentality of, of really making the defense, um, forcing them into a box where they have to make a decision. Um, and again, and it fits in really well with the, the mindset of the run and shoot, which is, Whatever you choose, you're wrong. So, so seeing that RPO come in has been, you know, it just adds another wrinkle. And then on top of that, also, um, there's been a fair amount of zone read, uh, probably about maybe four or five plays against uh, Oregon State. And then I think I only saw maybe two against Oregon that were true zone reads. But that also has has been kind of blended in there. So it's it's kind of nice to see. You know, with the air raid over the last few years, it was very static. But this adds a little bit more of a dynamic element to the offense where, where it really keeps the defense guessing. On this on this topic of the RPO, I wonder if we couldn't um, slow it down a little bit. You mentioned that this fits into the run and shoot philosophy of making the defense wrong no matter what they do. Could you give us an example of a play that you've seen on tape and talk maybe a little bit about what the quarterback's looking for, who he might be reading and what his options are on that play? Yeah, so the the most common one that we've seen, um, and and really you can probably count on two hands the number of times we've actually run a true RPO. But the most common one we've seen is the um, inside receiver uh, coming from the right, offensive right. He'll run a quick three step slant, 
Um, and the backfield motion is a inside or outside zone away from that side of the field. So all the quarterback is looking at is the linebacker on the receiver side. If he uh, flows hard with the, uh, with the running back, then he yanks it out of the running back's belly, picks it up and throws it to the guy running the slant from the inside receiver. Um, and usually that, it, it, that hits right where that linebacker vacated from. So, you know, if he sticks, it's one less, uh, if that linebacker sticks in place, it's one less guy to come and flow to the run. Um, but if he, if he, uh, flows with the run, then he leaves a huge hole in the, in the second level for that receiver to fill and just take it and take it and run. So that's, that's the most common one that we've seen. Um, and like I said, the two receivers on the other side, they're completely block and run. They're not even really in a route of, of, of any sort. Uh, and even if you split the offensive line, the center, left guard, left tackle, they're all block and run and right guard, and right tackle are pass setting. So it's, it's a complete uh, split field play. I'd like now to maybe step out and take a look at some of those passing concepts that you mentioned, or maybe just one. We'll kind of highlight one. Um, could we go through a classic Mouse Davis run and shoot style passing concept and just talk about what kinds of responsibilities the receivers have and what it is about that concept that makes it uniquely run and shoot? My personal favorite run and shoot play is is go. And um, uh, I coach high, high school football out here. And anytime I get the chance to put go in our package, uh, I, I, I advocate for it like crazy because it's an absolute just killer, particularly against zone defenses. Um, so go is uh, exclusively out of a three by one set out of a trips formation. Um, the outside receiver is going to run a vertical and he takes an outside release and stretches the field. He tries to take the top off the defense as much as he can. Um, the, uh, furthest inside receiver closest to the ball, he's going to run a, an arrow route, essentially, uh, aiming at three yards, uh, past the line of scrimmage. And he will take that straight to the sideline. Um, uh, and then where go really makes his money is that middle guy against the zone defense. He's going to aim for the outside hip of the flat defender, let the flat defender cross his face and then turn his butt to the flat defender and then kind of feel for the, the open hole in the, in, the, in the zone there. So he doesn't really have a static landmark. He just kind of flows to wherever the gap is. So if it's cover three, that, that quick arrow route is going to pull the flat defender out of the way, and he settles in right behind him. If it's cover two, he adjusts a little bit and kind of hooks around to hit that spot in between the hook curl and the flat defender. Um, and then there's an adjustment to where we go, man, we get, uh, they close down their splits between these two slots and it's a nice little rub play. Uh, you just kind of clip the hip of the inside, uh, inside defender and let that arrow route take it to the sideline and he should come nice and clean and free. Um, backside receiver is just kind of out there for show. He doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, but, uh, and there's a little half roll with the quarterback, give him a couple steps towards, towards the play, uh, to, to get a little bit better angle on the throw. Um, and then that whole shot with the, with the middle slot is, uh, difficult for his own defense to defend. Um, and that's, uh, <clears throat> I would run that, you know, 15, 20 times a game, uh, uh, when we've had it in at the high school level down here and, and it's, it's killer, um, especially for, uh, for any kind of zone defense. So if I understand you correctly, it sounds like this concept kind of uses two fixed routes. That's that go route down the sidelines that you talked about, and then a shorter route coming underneath. And the idea is that those fixed routes are going to move defenders around and force the coverage to react. And then there's this third receiver who doesn't have a set route. He's got instead a set of options that he can run against different coverages. What he does is going to change from play to play. It's all going to be based on the coverage and how the defense reacts. So with that in mind, what players in Washington State's offense are especially benefiting from this new style of play? 
So it's probably going to be a little bit counterintuitive, but right now I think the player who has benefited the most from this offense is actually Dion McIntosh, the, mm. the starting running back. Um, his, his running style is very much downhill. He is a, he is a one cut and go type of type of running back. Um, uh, he's, he's not the starting running back, um, or he wasn't anticipated to be the starting running back. Of course we have Max Borgie who is, you know, all world back there. Um, but he's, uh, been dealing with a back injury, um, which is disappointing because he would have been fantastic in this offense too. But McIntosh um, was kind of a little bit of a, a, a square peg in a round hole in the air raid. He wasn't, he's not a great pass receiver out of the backfield. He's okay, but not nearly as good as Borgie. But with the one cut kind of uh, inside zone, outside zone scheme of, uh, of the run and shoot, that really allows him, him to shine. And he doesn't have to worry about catching the ball out of the backfield because outside of a screen here and there, run and shoot, if it's a pass play, the, the back is blocking. So he doesn't have to worry about slipping out of the backfield like he would have done with the with the air raid. So for him, that's been that's been uh, and he's kind of been a revelation with uh, with Borgie out 147 yards in the first week, I think 92 against Oregon um, and actually had took a took a screen pass for a, a, a big chunk play. Um, so he's been great. Um, the other the other group that has benefited are the receivers, of course. Um, but where it's really been in their favor is that if you looked at an air raid box score over the last eight years, you'd see about 13 different players under the receiving stats category um, because uh, the receivers would have a rotation that was eight to 10 players deep in any given year. Uh, with a run and shoot, um, they don't do that. It's You have the four top receivers and they take all of the snaps. So they get all the targets. Um, so our our four our four starting guys are really um, seeing the benefit of increased targets, increased numbers of catches, um, and and just you know being out there for all sixty minutes of the game. Something that I've been wondering about looking at those box scores, as you say, is that oftentimes in an air raid offense, those outside wide receivers are your stud receivers. They're a little bit bigger, got a lot of straight line speed, good physicality. They're the guys who are taking those deep shots down the sidelines. I'm noticing that this year, Washington State doesn't really have an emerging outside receiver threat. Everything seems to have shifted inside into the slots. Is there anything that you can attribute that to? Um, I, I think it's because we really have four slot receivers that are playing out there. Uh, we don't really have true outside receivers at this point. Um, Calvin Jackson and Jameer Calvin are our two starting outside receivers or, or were before Calvin Jackson got hurt, but they're both, you know, five, nine, one sixty, five, ten, one eighty type guys. They're really truly slot receivers. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a, a transition in that sense. Um, and the, it, it's weird because the the numbers aren't necessarily there, but if you look at if you kind of chart Dolores throws, most of his throws are going to the sidelines, um, quick out routes, uh, stick routes, which tells me that they're running a lot of switch concepts. So the the slots are are ending up on the sidelines. Um, why that is, uh, without being in a quarterback meeting room, I couldn't really tell you specifically. It may just be that you know it's a true freshman quarterback, so we're kind of slow rolling the offense a little bit, letting him get comfortable. Um, before we kind of unleash the whole thing uh, out there for him. Um, but it's, yeah, it might just be a quirk thing. He might, might be more comfortable with the slot guys. And that's, that's really difficult to pinpoint without, you know, sitting down and talking to, to Rolovich or, or Dolores specifically. 
Well, another inference that could be made, though, too, off that is they're attacking the, the weakness or the, the weakness that they're seeing in the defense. I think you could make strong arg- arguments that Oregon and Oregon State's strongest personnel in the defensive backfield is outside at corner. So they can they can make a lot more money in the interior matching those those safeties up against Bell and Harris. Yeah, and, that's and, a, and Bell, Bell and Harris have been fantastic. So, I've, you know, I never have a problem with it, throwing them the ball. To get back to Andrew's point about attacking those safeties and nickelbacks out of the slot, something that did show up in the Oregon State game was almost like a slot fade kind of concept. So to define that, the basic idea is that your outside receiver, the guy down the sidelines, he's going to run something short. And his job's almost to be a decoy. He's just trying to grab the attention of the cornerback and get him to stay shallow with him and to stop him from dropping down the sidelines. So the outside receiver is going to hold the cornerback short. And then if he can do that, then you really can isolate your slot receiver on the inside against a safety or nickelback in a lot of space because he doesn't have to worry about that cornerback to the outside. He can just take off vertical and use all that space toward the sidelines to try and get open. Um, I know that this was used a couple of times against Oregon State. I don't know if this was used in the Oregon game, um, but either way, do we know what this is called in run and shoot nomenclature? Um, yeah, we did see it against Oregon. I think it was Bell had one down the sideline, uh, the right-hand sideline, um, where it was basically that. I don't think that we run a true slot fade. Uh, from what I've seen, um, the outside receiver will run a slant or a quick in at about five yards, and then um, the slot receiver will run about an eight to ten yard out for about two steps and then turn it up the sideline. So pretty similar concept, but just a little bit more a little bit more vertical instead of a fade to the corner. Um, but yeah, it's it's essentially the you know attacking the same part of the field. So along those lines, um, I, as far as terminology, I'm not as well versed in run and shoot terminology as I am air raid to be perfectly frank i'm still learning the run and shoot um in a lot of ways but uh it's definitely in there because we've seen it multiple multiple times and the reason that i bring that up is just because some of those deep throws to those slot receivers by delora were absolute dimes so we talked a little bit about how maybe some of delora's throw selection might be based on him being a young quarterback or based on his comfort maybe his offense is somewhat limited because he's still just a freshman but this is one area where he's really outperforming a lot of other young quarterbacks in terms of both accuracy and ball placement in the downfield passing game well, if I can yeah, give Cougar fans a back rub for a second, I, I want to add to that. Delora's throw inventory has been super impressive. I've watched both games, just finished my Oregon study, and the, his ability to layer balls at the second level over and under defenders. Um, he doesn't have the biggest arm in the world, but I mean, he's able to drive those those cover two hole shots in. He's he's throwing like you said the fade, or it's it's almost more like a like a wheel route. But uh, Delora has been spectacular, and he showed the ability to make basically every throw at every level. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really impressive. He's going to be disgusting in a year or two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we might with the with the pandemic here, we might get him for five years, which is probably <laughs> terrifying for a lot of defensive coordinators. Speaking of defensive coordinators that have to try and figure out how to stop Delora, Washington State's got Stanford and Washington coming up in their next two games. What are we expecting out of those games? Is it going to be business as usual from what we've seen in the early season, or might those defenses present something a little bit different for the Cougs to worry about? 
Um, it's always difficult to predict what Stanford does um, yeah. against us. I don't know why, but it seems like they completely scrap most of their offensive and defensive game plans from the previous weeks when it comes to playing us. It feels like it's been a different, a completely different system every time we've played them. So trying to anticipate what David Shaw does, I don't know that David Shaw could, could even anticipate what David Shaw does. <laughs> um but what I would like to see uh, for our offense is we haven't really hit on the seam read, it doesn't seem like, which is the A1 concept in the run and shoot, uh, is that, that seam read from the, in, from the slot receiver, uh, anticipating what the defense is going to do and then adjusting to it. Uh, it's built into 90% of the uh, pass concepts uh, and the route combinations in, in the offense. But again, it seems like Delore, most of Delores throws have been to the sideline or to shallow crossers. And we haven't really seen deep middle. The only one that I can think of off the top of my head that may have been a seam read was the underthrown um, uh, streak to uh, Calvin in the end zone um, that was intercepted um, because Delora hung on to it for a little bit too long. So I'd really like to see us start hitting the, hitting the seam read in, in that sense. Um, and for the run game, um, it's it's been fine. I, I really wouldn't change anything. And there isn't a whole lot more to the run game. I think I think we've seen pretty much everything that the the run and shoot is going to do. It's inside zone. It's outside zone. Now we've got a little bit of the zone read action and the little inside trap play to Travell Harris that that we popped against uh, Oregon State. It's just kind of the special wrinkle that he threw in. But uh, other than that, run game is it is what it is at this point. It's not super complicated. All right. Thank you, Jesse, for taking us through the run and shoot and the way that Nick Rolovich has installed it at Washington State. Right now, we're going to take an ad break, but stay tuned because when we come back, we're going to look at Jesse's other area of expertise, the air raid offense, especially as it's run by Graham Harrell at USC. We'll see you back here in a minute. Late fall college ball, the NBA bubble, and UFC fight island. It's clear 2020 has been a year unlike any other, which is why you need a sports book with offers unlike any other. Get some skin in the game with my bookie, where odds boosts, lightning deals, and free bets await all season long. And with Turkey Day right around the corner, there really is no better time to feast on some NFL action. Whether you're a first-time customer or have been playing with my bookie for years, there is no shortage of value to be found in the thousands of game lines, unique prop bets, and contests that they offer every week. Sign up or get reloaded today, find an edge, make your bet, and get paid. They also boast a fully-fledged casino platform, giving you access to all the classic table, slot, and card games you'd expect to find at your local spot. And the best part is, at MyBookie, the doors never close, so you can continue to build your bankroll even after the stadium lights have gone out. Make the right play and sign up today at MyBookie. And when you do, use promo code OVERTIME to get your deposit matched halfway all the way up to 1000 bucks. The terms are simple. You put in $200, they'll match you with another 100 in your account. If you're already planning to bet this season, this is free betting money. It's winning season at MyBookie, so come join in on the fun and win some cash while you're at it. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Scheme Show here on 12 Pack Radio, where before the break, Jesse Casino, our guest for today, was taking us through the run-and-shoot offense that Nick Rolovich has just installed at Washington State. Before this year, though, Jesse also specialized in Mike Leach's air raid offense, and a lot of people tend to group these offenses together as being kind of pass-first spread offenses, but they're actually really different. So let's go back to Jesse. Now, Jesse, how do these offenses differ from each other, and what was Mike Leach's offense like in the Palouse before Nick Rolovich came and started changing things around? 
Uh, so, okay, so like we talked about, the run and shoot does all of its work kind of post-snap. It's read and react, whatever the defense does on the fly, uh, quarterback and receivers adjust to it. Uh, the air raid is a completely different animal. It does all of its heavy lifting before the snap happens. After the snap, the routes are predetermined. There's not really an adjustment. Everything is either checked to or audible to before the snap uh, or comes from the sideline, and you make that decision beforehand. Um, and, and in that way, it's it's kind of defense agnostic. It doesn't really care what you run uh, as long as we get into the correct play, uh, which in some cases with the air raid, it, the, the correct play is whatever you want to call. Um, something will pop free. It's just a matter of finding the open grass uh, based on the leverage uh, that the offense has against the defense. Um, so the QB uh, in the in the run and shoot is um, is reacting, but the QB in the air raid is just kind of going on autopilot as much as possible. The reads are predetermined. Uh, everything in the air raid reads from right to left across the field with one or two exceptions. Um, so you kind of kind of take a lot of the thought process uh, during the play out of it. And you, you kind of want to turn your robo- your quarterback into a robot as much as possible once the ball is snapped. Um, and it's it's always consistent. Um, you know, you, you see the same handful of plays over and over and over again. And it's it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah, And I. Um... I followed Cal a lot when Sonny Dykes was there. I'm a Cal alum. And so we had our own version of the air raid there for a while. And, you know, they're the, what you're just talking about with that philosophy really ties in with their practice philosophy, for example. Their idea is that you can practice the same play a hundred times every week, no matter what happens, no matter how well the defense prepares, they're never going to be able to prepare as much as you've prepared to run your small number of plays. They're never going to be able to run their defense better than you can run that small set of plays that you've been repping like heck all year. Um, Really interesting offensive philosophy. So USC's Graham Harrell comes out of that philosophy. He played quarterback for Mike Leach at Texas Tech. He coached for him for a couple of years at Washington State. How does his air raid differ from the classic Leach version? And what elements of Leach's offense can we see in Harrell's offense at USC? So the core of the offense is basically the same. The the pass patterns, you're going to see six, which is four verticals. You're going to see the mesh concept. You're going to see Y cross. You're going to see sail. You're going to see all those those things you would expect to see in the passing game. The only thing that USC really does a little bit different is they run the ball a little bit more often than you would see with a Mike Leach coach team, which you could say that about any football team on the face of the planet, they're going to run the ball more than Leach. But um, USC does uh, try to feed the backs a little bit more, even if they don't necessarily have leverage to, uh, which you, you would rarely see at, uh, at Washington State. Um, they do more with motion. Um, there are only a handful of, of specifically designed combinations where, where we would see motion across the formation with, with the air raid. Um, and that's really just to check coverage real quick and then dump a guy out in the flat. It wasn't really to to get to any particular spot in the field. Um, so he does uh, he does a little bit more with motion. He does a little bit more with formations. Uh, he'll tighten up the, the all four receivers and bring them down close to uh, to the ball. Um, they'll do a little bit more of a bunch type of deal uh, with the trips formation. Um, and the air raid really wasn't super interested in, in varying its formations too much. 
Uh, we'll see a little bit more screen action out of USC, um, a little bit more inside screen and running back screens that we would, than we would normally see with, a, with an air raid team. Um, and then they have this thing at USC called a tight end. I don't know if you've heard of them before because <laughs> we haven't for the last eight years. Um, but they've got a couple of those down down in California. So um, they'll, they'll run a little bit more with those. But even with the tight ends, when they actually go out in the pass concepts, they're doing the same thing just from a little bit closer to the ball. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch because I think there's there's two different types of air raid coaches. There's the, like we said, kind of with the run shoot, there's the true believers. There's the the Mike Leeches, the Munns, the guys that this is what we do. This is all we do. This is all we're going to do. And then there's the guys that are kind of loosely associated with the with the air raid. I think Graham Harrell kind of falls into that, um, like, like your Cal affiliation um Graham, not Graham, uh, Dykes falls into that a little bit. Uh, he's more of a true believer than than Harold. But you've also seen Harold incorporate the RPO. They don't run zone read often, but every once in a while they'll they'll tag a read on something. I think it's it's like a more of a loose interpretation of the air raid, a little bit more flexible. Following the air raid for a while, one of the mantras that you always heard is that you know you've got five eligible receivers. That's your running back and your four wide receivers. And the goal of someone like Mike Leach or Sonny Dykes is to get all five of those guys roughly an equal number of touches um, all season. You want all five of those guys out in the route. Whereas USC, you know, they're leaving their back end to block a little bit maybe not all the time. Sometimes they're even using some seven man protections, keeping their tight end in the block. And so I guess a question that I have is why would a coach go away from the air raid philosophy that says we've got five weapons, let's use them all roughly an equal amount. Why would you take some of those weapons off the table in the passing game in order to get this wrong game, in order to get this RPO game, in order to get kind of away from that true believer, Mike Leach offense uh, that uh, kind of got the whole movement going. So you're, you're probably asking the wrong guy because if there's a guy who's as close to Mike Leach in terms of offensive philosophy, it's probably me. Um, I wouldn't uh, change that ratio too much. But for somebody like USC, I think it's really a combination of two things. I think one is the guys that they have access to at USC. Um, at Washington State, you're not going to get a 6'4", 245-pound tight end who runs a 4540. We don't get those guys. USC gets those guys. So if you have those guys, you want to use them. So you, you bring that, uh, you kind of match your philosophy to your, your offensive uh, personnel that you have. Uh, so there's that aspect. And they also have, you know, uh, running backs, uh, that are fantastic. Um, and I think the other aspect of it too, is that Graham Harrell is just the offensive coordinator. He's not the head coach. Clay Helton's the head coach and Clay Helton's an offensive coordinator by trade. So I think it's kind of a marriage between what Clay Helton wants to do and also what he hired Graham Harrell to do, which is to be a little bit more of the, the, the air raid attack. Um, so those, those two things combined um, probably lead you more towards the kind of hybrid offense that you see. Um, and really, it, you know, the, the common saying is it's not about the X's and O's, it's about the Jimmy's and Joe's. If you've got those types of guys, you've got those types of bell cow running backs, you've got those uh, big tight ends that can play. Um, you recruited them, you better use them. Uh, otherwise, you, know, you'll, you might not continue to get those types of kids down the line. Speaking of the Jimmys and Joes, uh, what kind of players does it take to run a really successful air raid? And do we see that kind of person? Well, obviously, USC always recruits really well. They have the personnel to run whatever they want. But are there any players who seem especially well suited to an air raid philosophy with the Trojans, either right now or maybe in past years? Um. I mean, their receivers, uh, uh, Drake London, he's a prototypical outside receiver in the air raid, tall, uh, physical, fast. 
Um, if, if we could have, you know, four or five of them every year, uh, in the air raid, he, you'd never go wanting for outside receivers. Uh, St. Brown on the inside, you know, it, quick twitch athlete, a uh, very good in space, very good in the open field. That's exactly the type of receiver that you want there. Um, they're the Malapai, they're, they're kind of number one running back. Um, I would say it's not necessarily a prototypical air raid running back. Um, but, uh, uh number seven, yeah, the other one guy, Carr. Who's, uh, yeah, Carr. he is much more kind of along those lines, uh, slippery out of the backfield, blindingly fast. Um, he, he's what you would more expect out of an air, air raid running back. Um, really honestly, the biggest question mark running that offense for me right now is the quarterback, um, which in the air raid, you don't want to have questions at the quarterback position when you're running the air raid. Um, Slovis is good. There, that's no knock on him. He's a competent quarterback. I don't know that he is an air raid quarterback. Um, and that and again, maybe, uh, maybe part of the reason why they're slanting away a little bit from that true air raid mentality. Um, he's young, he has a chance to grow into it. And what we see with the air raid is the more time you spend in the air raid, the better you get. That's why you have Anthony Gordon who, you know, did not have a single start and then throws for 5,600 yards as a redshirt senior because he was in the air raid for five years. So he learned the system so he can continue to improve. Um, and he's shown that he has the clutch gene for sure in the last two weeks. Um, so that's, that's not a slight against him, but right now compared to what, what all else they have at all the other skill positions, he's kind of my biggest question mark for them right now. So you might get some USC fans jumping on you for, for that one. And so I kind of want to make a distinction because, you know, I don't think anyone would say that Silvis isn't a good quarterback, but that's different from being a good air raid quarterback, which is really, um, I, I love that emphasis because looking at the tape, I would agree with you. What is a good air raid quarterback and what is it about Silvis that makes him a little bit different at this point in his career? Uh, it's again, it's kind of counterintuitive a little bit, but as an air raid quarterback, once that ball is snapped, you have to turn your brain off and just go through your reads and your progressions and, and run what you have been repping to run every single day for the last, you know, seven months or whatever it has been. Um, and it seems like Slovis just tries to see too much of the field, uh, at one time and he, and he hesitates uh, and gets himself into trouble. Um, and he does have a tendency to drop his eyes a little bit when he gets any kind of pressure. Um, speaking of Graham Harrell, if you, if you go back and look at the kind of 06, 07 Graham Harrell at his height, um, you would see him continually, continuously retreating, like dropping back and dropping back and be 15 yards beyond the line of scrimmage, but he still got his eyes downfield going through his reads. And I think that's something that Slovis has, has struggled with when, when things don't look exactly right, he does. Panic isn't the right word, but it, but it does get to him a little bit. Um, and really with the air raid, your, your quarterback, he's a point guard. He's a distributor. He's just a means from getting the ball from A to B. Wh whichever receiver is open, that's, that's the one you want. That's where you want the ball to go. Um, so, and again, he's a sophomore. He's got time. He's going to get better. He's going to be pretty good by the time he leaves uh, L.A. Um, it, it's just a, a kind of the, the nature of the beast with the air raid. The more time you spend in it, the, the better you're going to get. Um, he's just got to get to that point where it's it's automatic. It's just robotic. Um, and and finding the, the open receiver is just a matter of going through your progressions, hitting your reads correctly, hitting the timing correctly. Um, and and like I said, just turning your brain off once the ball is snapped. And this whole debate about kind of the classic air raid versus this modified air raid with a run game and the RPO game and all that, uh, something that I've been tracking over the course of this season as I've watched USC is that 
it seems to me that a lot of their big passing plays do come at the end of games. There's been some talk by commentators that that's because the coverage defenses are playing late in games. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but something that I think that we are seeing is that late in games when USC has to pass and they have to get away from that kind of pseudo two back run game, um, they start to go for wide a lot more. They start to throw more that kind of classic air raid, spread them out, precision passing game. Um, something else that's interested me about that is we mentioned St. Brown, we mentioned Drake London, when USC's in two back, they're putting Drake London in the slot and they're putting St. Brown on the outside this season. And I think that that's led to maybe a little bit less explosive play on the outside in that kind of Michael Pittman spot that they had last year. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because I feel like USC is really trying to get their best receivers on the field. Drake London's killing it down the seam in the slot. Obviously, you need St. Brown on the field. Um, but late in the game, when they go four wide, they're actually playing London at one slot. They're putting St. Brown at the other. And then they're bringing in, you know, maybe freshman um, McCoy, a big receiver to play at the outside. And that's when St. Brown's really been able to go to work. Once they spread out and do that more classic air raid look, St. Brown's able to operate against safeties. He's able to operate against linebackers get open down the seam, get open kind of over the middle of the field. And so from my perspective, I might be on your side being more pro Mike Leach, say spread the field more, throw the ball more, uh, put more receivers on the field, use all that talent that you've got, because it feels to me at least like when they go to that run heavy game with with kind of the tight ends and it feels like their passing offense is really kind of taking a step back. I don't know if that's something that you all have seen, um, but I'd be curious to hear uh, your thoughts. Yeah, well, I playing devil's advocate, I think a lot of it is to do with available personnel right now because last year you saw Drake London basically running their Y as a receiver instead of a tight end. Um, this year they only have seven scholarship receivers healthy and available right now, and so what you're seeing is they're trying to use that tight end group. I think they've got like five scholarship tight ends. Uh, so you're you, they, they're putting – they've been putting raw in the slot or are outside with London in the slot because London played in the slot all last year with raw, but now they've got a tight end. So London's kind of like a hybrid tight end anyway. So he's basically just, he's running the slot as, as like a detached uh, H back. So uh, I think, I think that's a big piece of it. Also kind of running back on Graham Harrell, going back to his North Texas days, he's always been more of a modified air raid. Even there, they had more of a power running game, um, a lot more effective power running game than what they're trying to force feed at USC. But uh, they, they, he he's I don't know that he's ever been just the the spread him out and run. I think he believes a little bit more in leverage and coverage, which are kind of dirty words in the Mike Leach school of air raid offense. Yeah, we don't we don't really care about your your coverage, your leverage. We're we're gonna run what we run, and and it's gonna beat you regardless. Um, and along those lines too, moving receivers around is is a pretty big no no as well. Uh, of course, you're captive to your personnel, and with with USC um, only having you know seven receivers, you don't have that full rotation that you like to see in the air raid. So that is probably a piece of it too. But <clears throat> over the last, you know, since 2012, outside receivers played outside, inside receivers played inside, and the right-hand side receivers played on the right-hand side, and the left-hand played on the left-hand. And you didn't cross the streams, and you didn't bounce back and forth, and it's that death by a thousand paper cuts mentality. Or, you know, I don't fear the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks one time. I fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. And it just becomes that muscle memory, and and, and you can, you know, doesn't matter what the defense does, you're, you're just going to beat it. Um, so that's a little bit of a departure as well. But again, you know, like I, like I said, uh, Jimmy's and Joe's, that, that dictates everything. Um, so you, you got to run with what you got. Uh, but as a coach, if I see that we are incredibly successful in the fourth quarter when we kind of go into a little bit of panic mode, 
spread it out and fling it all over the yard. Maybe that's what we're best at. And maybe that's what we should do from the jump and maybe see if that works. Um, Cause if, if, you know, that's where we get the, the most meat on the bone. Uh, I mean, why, why wait until you're down 14 with six minutes left in the fourth quarter to go to that? Let's do it from a one and, and, and get ahead. I think they're trying to keep Keaton Slovis in one piece. I mean, calling that offensive line porous is kind of an insult to the word porous. So they, I think they're, they're trying to manufacture a run game to keep him upright and keep him in one piece. Last year, we saw what happened when Matt Fink got in the game outside of a couple Hail Mary uh, bailouts from Michael Pittman against uh, Utah. He was largely ineffective. And I think USC fans would agree with that. So um, I think quarterback depth, wide receiver depth, and uh, the fact that they just have this this stock of, of tight ends is all kind of factoring into the decision making by Graham to move his receivers around, kind of take a receiver off the field, which I agree with you when they would be better off just playing with McCoy, uh, St. Brown, Vaughn's and and Drake London on the field at all times together, as opposed to trying to get maybe sometimes even 12 personnel on the field and taking two of those guys off. It's just insane. It's insane to me. I don't know if you all saw this, but there was a quote from a recent presser by Helton where he said that they basically studied the stats of championship teams and he saw that they all rush for 160 or 170 yards a game. And so now he wants the Trojans to rush for 160 or 170 yards a game. If you look at the box score, they've hit almost exactly that yardage each of the last two games. It looks like they have a run quota. They've kind of made the philosophical choice first and they're trying to make the offense fit it. And I do wonder if that's not slowing them down a little bit, but I guess uh, that that remains to be seen over the rest of the season. Um, anything else that anybody wants to add about the, uh, the air raid before we move on to an ad break? Just on that, they're a razor's edge from being 0-2 right now. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how much stock you can put into into that necessarily. You know, one play breaks the wrong way, they're they're staring 0-2 in the face. So. Yeah, you can't you can't be you can't just manufacture balance. Like if you're balanced <laughs> and you're going to run a spread offense, you're going to run a spread offense. You can't dabble with the spread. You can't you can't dabble with West Coast under like you just you got to you got to be what you are. And they're trying to be too many things right now. And I think that's largely why they've been ineffective. Great. Well, that's another fantastic discussion. Thank you very much to Jesse. Um, I believe that Jesse is going to sign off before we start talking Colorado. Jesse, thank you so much for being on here and talking us through the run and shoot and talking us through the air raid. For anybody who wants to check out Jesse's stuff, you can find him at Twitter uh, at Jesse underscore casino. And you can find his coach's corner segment at Coog Center. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. I'd love to do it again anytime. Anytime. Jesse, it's been awesome. All right, man. See you later. All right, Andrew and I are going to do one more segment where we talk about the Colorado Buffaloes and what we've seen from them early in the season. But first, we're going to listen to a couple more ads. Stay tuned. We'll see you here after the break. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the 12-Pack Scheme Show. Uh, we've been hitting the teams of the Pac-12 North a lot, talking about Oregon and Washington State. Um in, in our previous show and in this one. And so today we're really going to make sure that we're hitting the South a little bit. And we're going to look at a team that both Andrew and I think has looked pretty good to start the year. That team is the Colorado Buffaloes. They started out 2-0 and under new head coach Carl Durrell. And so we're just going to go back and forth, talk a little bit about their offense, talk a little bit about their defense, uh, bring some personnel into it and talk about what it is that's gotten Colorado off to this hot start. Um, so Andrew, we were talking a little bit during the break about Colorado and how they've been looking. Um, what are your thoughts on on their offense. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that needs to be mentioned is Sam Neuer, who spent most of last year, I think, playing safety, has been very efficient and effective, uh, both 
um, throwing the ball downfield, but really mostly in the RPO and, and zone read games. It's they're they're running more of a true spread offense, and uh, he's been he's just been good getting the yards that is there and and making the correct decisions. Yeah, and that story is absolutely fascinating. They mentioned it in the broadcast that he started out as a quarterback recruit, asked to be switched to safety so he could get on the field as a junior. He graduated. He was going to transfer someplace. He could play QB. The coaches talked him into coming back, and he ended up getting that starting job. And, I mean, I would agree. I think what that story the way that that story shows up on tape is that he doesn't look like he's confused at all. He obviously knows the offense. Um, he knows where he wants to go with the ball and he can get it there for the most part. There are a couple of kind of head scratchers in terms of accuracy, maybe in uh, the underneath game a little bit here and there, but he really knows what he's doing. Um, and he looks good making a lot of different throws. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see if that's rust related. I'm actually pretty familiar with, with Neuer because well, one, his brother is the director of player personnel at the university of Oregon. Uh, but two, he's from my backyard. He's from up here in Beaverton, Oregon. So, um, I know the quarterback coach that he used to work with. I worked with him too, when I was in high school and, uh, I, I would assume that a lot of that rust and inaccuracy on some of the underneath stuff is just because he hasn't been playing quarterback for the last year and a half. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll be interesting to see if that, if those accuracy things get, get corrected as, as the season goes on and as he gets more comfortable playing the position again. And this might give us a chance to get into some things that we kind of glossed over in the run and shoe segment, but we throw out terms like I think throw profile came up Um um, you know, where, where are these quarterbacks actually throwing the ball when they're getting their completions? And that was something that really stood out to me about Neuer. Um, you know, I've seen him throw corner routes, you know, 15 yards deep down the sidelines. Um, I've seen him throw crossing routes, working behind linebackers and underneath safeties. I've seen him throw all those quick outs, um, working out to the sidelines away from, I mean, he's really got a fantastic command. Lots of times you'll see quarterbacks who rack up high completion percentages, but it's the same throw over and over and over again. And for Neuer, that's definitely not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to call it throw inventory. It's like, what can you do with the ball? Um, for instance, early in Justin Herbert's career at Oregon, it was a 90 mile an hour fastball on every throw. So everything was getting drove. Um, I think with Neuer, you've seen the ability to layer the ball um, over and under defenders at the second and third level. Um, he's shown good touch on on deep throws. Uh, he doesn't have a, a massive arm. He's not a guy that's really just going to drive the heck out of it and wow you, but uh, which limits his inventory just a little bit. But right. uh, overall, I think the stuff that they're asking him to do, he's been very efficient in it for the most part. And you can be a great quarterback not being able to bomb the ball deep. Uh, even even for a quarterback with that arm talent, that's only you know a couple of plays a game where you're really dropping back and chucking it. Um, yeah. And he can get the ball where he needs to get it. Something else that's just fun about him is he is he's definitely not afraid to take off and run with the ball. He's six foot four, 220 pounds. I think against Stanford, he scored two touchdowns on zone reads uh, right near the goal, goal line. There was a play where he tried to hurdle a guy and uh, ended up crashing into him. He's he's a lot of fun to watch. Kind of a yeah. surprise. <laughs> and I, I like guys. I have, a, I have a special place in my heart for quarterbacks that play with a little bit of physicality. He actually yeah. tries to finish his runs, too, which is uh, good and bad because I don't think that ca- Colorado has particularly great quarterback depth, but it's fun to see somebody that's willing to put his body out there a little bit and uh, play, play, play a little physical. Let's talk a little bit about Colorado. I want to talk a little bit more about their offensive personnel. The guy that stood out to me was Dimitri Stanley, their slot receiver, who was the beneficiary of some of those throws over the middle. Um, 
let's see. I don't know if we want to talk about him and the way that they use him, or we could get into what Colorado's offense likes to do. I mean, what, um, maybe we'll, maybe we'll go there. We'll come back to Stanley once we understand a little bit more about what they're trying to accomplish. So Colorado, what I'm seeing, they're a big 10 personnel team, just as a reminder uh, for the listeners, 10 personnel, uh, two digit number. First number is the running back. Second number is the tight end. So 10 personnel is one running back is zero tight ends, four receivers. Colorado plays a lot of that. They also play a lot of 11 personnel so one running back one tight end three receivers they play a little bit with two tight ends in the game but they really are kind of a one back spread team that does make good use of a tight end does that seem like a like a good characterization based on what you're seeing as well yeah i think that's very fair i believe the tight end is an auburn transfer that came in last year and he's been He's more effective as a blocker than he is a vertical. He's not someone that's really going to stretch the seam, but um, he he can catch the ball absolutely, and he's effective in those short underneath zones. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a true spread offense. I think this offense uh, more kind of reflects on what Colorado was trying to do last year than it is what Darren Cheverini was calling when he was the play caller two years ago prior to Mel Tucker's arrival. So uh, it, it's interesting to see that de- as it develops uh, through the course of the year. But like you said, they've got great personnel. I, I I thought last year with Fontenot and Mangum that they had a really great backfield. And now they're bringing in a guy whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, maybe you can recall. I might be mispronouncing the first name, but Jarek Broussard. Yeah, Broussard. That's the guy. Yeah. Yes, he's been he's been awesome. He's been really fun to watch. And so uh, they've got a pretty good deep group there too. So with uh, Nixon and then as you as you mentioned in the slot, they've got uh, number uh, number eighteen. I always remember numbers, but uh, yeah, they've been they've been really fun to watch. So speaking of Dimitri Stanley, speaking of these kind of spread principles that Colorado's offense is based around, um, I mean, one of the things that I really like about the way that they're using him is they are using him to go over the middle. Sometimes um, a lot of spread offenses can be a little bit sideline oriented with the bubble screen and things like that, but he's running a lot of those intermediate crossers. Um, His long touchdown or his first long touchdown in the Stanford game was just a slant that he took kind of right behind the linebacker and ran out everybody to the sidelines. They also get him in on some jet sweeps and things like that. I mean, He's just got, you know, apparently based on the film, some pure speed and they're really finding a lot of different ways to use him and uh, work him into that offense. Yeah. And I'm, I believe the long touchdown, the slant was actually on an RPO where they read that play side inside linebacker. So they're using him to, to replace um, the, some of the zone read stuff, keep the quarterback upright a little bit more often, which is fun to see because you, you have a dynamic athlete where you can get him matched up on safeties a lot of times and uh, you get him in free space and he can, you can split them and go. So uh, yeah, it's been really fun to watch him. It was good to see Brendan Rice catch his first collegiate touchdown. Um, the son of Jerry Rice last week, uh, that was kind of a blown coverage, but you could obviously see the physical talent there. Just a big, big, big receiver, six, three plus 200 pounds. So uh, yeah, I think I think the personnel has been greatly upgraded, and I think that's a testament to Darren Cheverini, who's actually been with the program since before Mel Tucker and Carl Durrell. Um, he's done a great job recruiting that position, and I think if we looked at a, at a blue chip like ratio of the team, that's where almost all their four stars are are concentrated. So, uh, great job by Darren Cheverini, and I think uh, I think we're seeing him kind of grow as a play caller as well. I want to go back to something, and we've kind of mentioned it or danced around it in the last couple of shows, including when we were talking about the run and shoot, and it's the idea that the RPO 
kind of replaces or changes up the person that you're reading in order to keep the quarterback upright. I feel like that's something that doesn't get discussed very much on broadcasts, and it might be interesting for the listeners to dive into that a little bit more. So can we talk kind of about the theory of that? I mean, sometimes, I think you mentioned this last time, people think of the RPO and the zone read as the same thing, but what is that difference and how does it help your quarterback stay upright? Yeah, they think it's it's two ways of doing the exact same thing. Like you can you can cut a watermelon a, a bunch of different ways and it still tastes the same. And so it's the same thing with the run game and the in the RPO and the zone read. The zone read, you're eliminating usually a defensive lineman by reading him and the quarterback is now responsible for that guy. If that guy's going to go make a tackle, that's the, at the quarterback's discretion, he's got to pull it and run. With the RPO, you're you're doing it with the leverage of either a defensive back or a linebacker at the second level. So uh, now we're going to hold that backside linebacker. If he comes running down towards the the play side, we're going to pull it out and we're going to throw that slant right where he just left. So it's it's about space and numbers. It's about trying to get yourself an advantage at the point of attack in the run game. And as you saw with Oregon against Washington State last week, you can stack both those concepts on together. So now you can read two guys on the same play. First read is his own read. Second read is uh, is the RPO with where either the quarterback is going to take off and run into that vacated space by the defensive end, or he's going to throw it to like a tight end or a wide receiver in the flat based on now what the second defender outside the box is doing. So it's just a way of, of, of capturing numbers in the box so that you can uh, have a more effective and efficient run game. The, once the RPO came in vogue, a lot of teams were doing a zone read with a bubble screen on the backside. And a lot of kind of mm -hmm. old school purists were saying that's nothing new. That's just an old school triple option where the run is the dive part of the triple option. You know, the handoff to the guy straight up the middle. Um, the the zone read element with the quarterback keeper is equivalent to kind of the, the old option element of the triple option where the quarterback pulls the ball. It's just that now instead of pitching the ball is the third option off of that play. He's throwing it out to the sidelines on a screen or something like that. And, you know, this just occurred to me, but it's something that that I've always thought about when I've heard that argument in the past. Um, is the is the RPO attack that we're seeing so popular right now, is that really just a revamped triple option? Or is there something more that we can get when we're able to run these as RPOs instead of having all three of those options basically starting in the box and operating in the run game? Yeah, I mean, I think... I, there's there's multiple levels to it, but in in a lot of ways it is similar to the triple option or any of those old wing T offenses. You're you're trying to create um, hesitancy in the defense, so you want guys to instead of flowing and playing the ball quickly and and just playing natural fast football, you want them to be thinking about what they're doing and what the outcome of their action is. What what is the offense going to do in reaction to me flying downhill to the ball right now? And if you can create that hesitancy, you can give yourself um, an opportunity at the point of attack to maybe create a little bit better leverage, which might be the difference between your running back getting a three-yard gain or creasing the defense for a 40-yard touchdown. So uh, I think the principle is the same. The, the triple option was about numbers. The main difference between like a triple option offense and the modern spread offense is now with the with the formation more spread where where we don't have all these bodies condensed in such a tight space and there is the actual threat of a deep vertical passing game in more of a balanced sense. Absolutely. And something else that I love about the RPO game, and we saw it on that long touchdown by Stanley, is that if you're running the triple option, your third option, that pitch player, you know, he's going to be in the same relationship to the quarterback every single time. You might be able to mess with numbers um, to, to kind of attack whatever it is the defense is trying to do. But that triple option look 
you know, in terms of dive quarterback keeper pitch is going to look the same every time. What I love about these RPO offenses is that that trip, that third option could be a bubble screen by a slot receiver. It could be a smoke screen by the outside receiver, just stopping, turning and looking for the ball. Or as we saw in the Colorado game, that could be a slot receiver running a slant and knifing right into the middle of the defense before he even gets the ball. I feel like that range of attack that the RPO game can give you is something that's uh, definitely a modernized version of these triple option principles. I think it makes them a little bit more lethal. I don't know that with the triple option, you'd ever see a guy get downfield quite as fast as Stanley did catching that slant off of that RPO. Well, Um, no, but you lose the aspect of space. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times when you have both a zone read and an RPO, the ball is still caught behind the line of scrimmage because, as, as you know, with, if the longer the play that develops, the more likely you're going to have offensive linemen getting downfield. Yep. And so with like that, like we talked about with the triple option, everything is so tight and compact. You're playing in, you're playing in close quarters down there in the box. The nice thing is, is that with the zone read and the RPO, almost like a triple option, like you're saying, is now you can also stretch the field horizontally more and you can create more space because it doesn't have to be a pitch. You can actually throw it. And so what happens is, is now instead of, uh, instead of operating in basically like this 14 yard wide box, we're operating at the entire 52 yards of width of the field or 53 yards of width of the field. So you can, you can, you're causing conflict for defenders, but you're also stretching them horizontally and putting them in positions where they have to make open field tackles against good athletes. And like we talked about with Stanley, that's, it's going to be, he's going to have an advantage against 99.9% of uh, safeties and linebackers that he encounters in those, in those areas. At this point, I think it might be good. You know, we've we've kind of explored the offense. Let's talk a little bit about Colorado's defense because they've really been pretty balanced in terms of where uh, how good they've looked on both sides of the ball. I think that their defense has shown um, a lot of strengths. So just to kind of introduce them, they are a base 3-4 defense. They've got really big three-down linemen uh, playing at that first level, sheltering those linebackers who are behind them, trying to command double teams and keep um, offensive linemen from getting up to those linebackers. Um, you know, they've looked really strong in the front, certainly, um, maybe a little bit less strong in coverage, at least from the Stanford game that I was able to see. What are your impressions of this defense? Yeah, and it's also too important to remember that the, the players are playing are on scholarship too, and the coaches are getting paid a lot of money. Yeah. Um, like Stanford's got just tremendous talent at wide receiver, and now that they have Davis Mills back, I think that they might have the best quarterback in terms of uh, NFL ceiling in the conference right now. So uh, it's certainly no easy task to just shut down that passing game. If David Shaw elects to uh, actually employ that, um, which is another, another conversation for another time. Uh, but the, uh, the big thing with, with Colorado that impresses me is they're one of the few teams in the conference that runs a base odd front base three, four defense and actually has the personnel and the, the body types up front to do it. Uh, most notably Terrence Lang, I think, is probably the best interior defensive lineman in the Pac-12 South. I think uh, he's just he's just really long and twitchy, and he's and he's that perfect that perfect size where he's about 290 pounds. Let me see if I can find him on the roster and get his actual size. But he's in that like 6'5", 290 pound range where he can either play in that head up on a tackle, stack him in two gap, um, and get off and make tackles, or you can slide him inside in more of a pass rush situation. And, and he's just a, a matchup nightmare for guards because of his length. So um, I think I think he's somebody that is very important to watch when you're watching Colorado and is someone that offensive coordinators in the Pac-12 South are certainly going to be keeping tabs on going into the into the coming weeks. Absolutely. Um, I like that you mentioned Stanford's wide receiver talent. If you look 
you know, as they were kind of mounting their comeback at the end of the Colorado game, they were throwing a lot of kind of just isolation one-on-one routes down the sidelines to their to their wide receivers versus Colorado's cornerbacks. And to the extent that that was successful, you could see that talent that you're talking about. Something that stood out to me, especially earlier in the game when they were kind of operating maybe a little bit more within a base offense, is that they were also having a lot of success um, so Colorado is a big zone coverage team. They blitz a good amount, but they do zone blitzing. They're not locking up and playing man to man. And when when you play zone and when you don't lock on to every single receiver, you give the offense the chance to outnumber your defenders because the defense isn't necessarily using a defender to match every single receiver that's out in the pattern. So what I was seeing early in the Stanford game is that Stanford was running a lot of um basically zone overloads or zone stretches, getting three receivers matched up on two defenders, not necessarily taking advantage of their personnel, but really, well, their wide receiver personnel, but putting the game into the hands of their quarterback and letting him make those kinds of reads. And the reason that I'm kind of going on about this is because in a couple of weeks, um, Colorado's got USC coming. They're not going to play Arizona State. That game's been canceled. But USC is another team that will spread you out when they're doing maybe what we think they they should do most of the time. Uh, they're a team that could potentially have a good precision-based, quick passing game, throwing those same kinds of zone overloads that Stanford threw. Um, you know, and the USC's also got good talent at wide receiver. What do we think about this Colorado defense and this coverage going up against an offense like USC's, which is different from what Stanford threw at them this last week? Yeah, I think it's uh, an interesting matchup based on the fact that USC wants to run the ball. They've shown that the last two weeks that, and and like our guests brought up today, apparently they would like to run for 160 yards a game, or maybe you brought that up. Uh, They will not run the ball against this, against this Colorado front. I think this Colorado front seven is a lot better than the USC front five is. Um, And with all due respect to the USC front five and the USC fans, but uh, I think I don't think that that's a matchup that they win, though. I do like them on the outside, though. And if they go to that 10 personnel look where they have both Drake London and Amon Ross St. Brown on the inside, I think that there's certainly matchups to be exploited. So I think this is going to be a uh, it's going to come down to does USC play to their personal strength or do they try to be a a fully dimensional offense? Because they're going to put themselves in more difficult situations by running up against a superior front seven than than they would have just throwing the ball with what is likely going to be uh, better receivers than than what what uh, Colorado can feel in the defensive backfield. Yeah, and when I look ahead to that USC game, um, you know there were I've got one play in mind on one of Stanford's late drives where they played this kind of tight bunch with three receivers all packed together. They had them all crossing with each other. And one guy just took off down the seam kind of in between a cornerback and a safety uh, and Mills hit him for a big game. And when I see something like that, I'm thinking of a guy like Drake London taking off down the seam and all the damage that he can do in that part of the defense. Um, I think that USC has potentially got weapons in the passing game to really um, uh, go after that Colorado back seven a little bit more than, than the teams that they've played so far. Yeah, UCLA had some success in the second half of that game, uh, trying to pull a replay of what they did against Washington State last year. Um, but the, I think that Colorado's group is young and they're maturing. I know that they lost a couple guys from last year. Uh, and again, that's another position where they've actually recruited pretty well. So it'll be fun to see since it's a later season matchup uh, with the with the development and the rest getting knocked off, uh, how both teams decide to try to stop an attack. 
all these canceled games are bumming me out. I would have loved to see Colorado go up against Arizona State. I'd love to see Utah play a football game at some point this year. Uh, that Arizona State game would have been really interesting because Arizona State showed that they have a pretty good group of running backs and that they think they have a retooled offensive line, which um, with the one-game sample against USC, it's tough to say since that USC front seven hasn't really stopped anything this year. But uh, this Colorado front seven certainly can stop something. And uh, seeing that strength-on-strength matchup would have been – uh, hopefully it still happens. Maybe it'll be a week seven game. Yeah. Well, cool. I think we've, you know, we've given people a good sense of what Colorado's all about and we've given them a sense of the fact that we both like them. We've been, um, uh, having a lot of fun watching them uh, over these first two weeks. Um, before we close out, um, I don't know if there are any other teams you want to give a shout out to or any other stuff that you've been seeing going on around the conference. Yeah, Washington run game looks really strong. Uh, they were replacing a couple guys, reshuffled some things on the offensive line, uh, going to a far more like old school West Coast offense, pro style attack. Um, and it's it was refreshing to see them come out and and do what do with the talent that they've been recruiting. Uh, what you would expect, they 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 dominated a team that was quite a bit smaller than them and uh, and and ran up a bunch of yards on the Beavers. So. Uh, certainly seeing the Washington offensive line come out and make plays was was refreshing. And for me, um, it's not so much about a, a team that has surprised me, um, but I am really looking forward to breaking down Arizona a little bit. I want to see a little bit about what they've got going on with their new defensive coordinator. I've always enjoyed that offense that they've been running there over the last couple of years. Um, have you had a chance to watch any Arizona? I, I haven't had a chance to actually break it down. I, I watched a little bit of the game live on Saturday. I haven't had a chance to break it down. Uh, seeing them go to an odd front, I was worried uh, the, the hardest part about switching from an even front uh, four or three uh, or like a four, two, five to that odd uh, three, four front is that you have to have big bodies that can eat blocks. And um, some of the schools in the Pac-12 have done a pretty poor job of identifying and recruiting that profile. Uh, Arizona got two grad transfers, one from, I believe, New Mexico, who's playing the nose tackle and who are awesome they've been a revelation and they they allowed those linebackers to flow to the ball and play free so um if seeing if they can keep those guys and uh, out of covid protocol and healthy and on the field uh, this arizona defense has a lot of upside despite losing guys like uh colin schooler and tony i think tony fields uh, anthony pandy was really impressive to me on saturday the he's the replacement for colin schooler at inside linebacker i actually think he's a slightly better athlete so uh, watching watching this era, this young Arizona defense in the in year one grow, uh, especially with those grad transfers having another year of eligibility because of the COVID rules, uh, they could have a pretty stout unit next year. And with that, I think we've come to the end of this week's episode of the 12 Pack Scheme Show. Um, we'll be posting another episode in two weeks, so be sure to check back for that. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me with tips, suggestions, comments, etc., feel free to reach me on Twitter at Burke18CFB. Otherwise, be on the lookout for that next episode in two weeks, as well as all the other episodes being put out by 12 Pack Radio. And we'll see you next time.